And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we rejoice in the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. It is a hope that we have already confessed in song through our giving, through even our gathering here as your church. We are proclaiming our hope in Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that that would not just be a one-day-a-week hope. That would not just be a passing thought. But that our hope in Christ would be the center of who we are in everything that we do. That our lives would be worship as we constantly lift your name because of who we are in Christ, what you have done for us in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So Heavenly Father, it is in that hope, in that power, that we come to you this morning. It's on the grounds of the cross of Christ and the empty tomb that we lift our voices to praise your name. It is in that hope that we open your word even now and we pray that your Spirit would take these truths and work in each and every one of us. Heavenly Father, may our, our hearts be open to receive your Word, the work that you are doing in us, that we may leave this place changed for our good and for your glory. I pray that you would give me authority and boldness to proclaim your word in truth and in power this morning. That your name may be lifted high. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When you start talking about classic sports movies with people, there's a movie that almost always comes up. It's a 1986 classic movie, which might sound strange to some of you to call a 1986 movie classic, but it's called Hoosiers. Hoosiers tells the story of a small Indiana basketball team from Hickory, Indiana, and this, this team miraculously makes it into the 1952 Indiana State Tournament. Goes on to win the championship. Sorry for the spoiler there, but you probably should have seen it by now. It's been out for a while. But there's a powerful scene in that movie. This little team from Hickory, Indiana, this little out-of-the-way town, come from their, their little tiny gym and they, they come walking into Butler Arena. They have made it to the state championship in Indianapolis, the big city. And, they, and, and if you've seen the movie, you probably know exactly the scene I'm talking about. They walk into this gym and it is awe-inspiring. 
You can see it on all their faces as they are looking around at this massive gym that seats thousands and thousands of people. In fact, the camera kind of backs up all the way up to the back corner of the gym, and you can kind of see it. And, and even as you're watching the movie, you feel some of that awe, the weight of that moment with the players. It is awe-inspiring, especially for these young kids coming from a little tiny gym. They've never been anywhere like this. They've never seen anything like this. It is intimidating. In fact, you can, you can see some of the fear start to kind of crawl, come into their faces as they are just, what hope do we have against these big city teams? Then the coach, played by Gene Hackman, does a very simple thing, a very simple thing that, that calms those fears. He pulls out a little tape measure. And he has one of his players stand under the basket and hold it, and he backs up to the free throw line. Sure enough, it's 15 feet. Then he has one of his players get up on the shoulders of another player and hold, it, hold the tape measure up to the, up to the rim, and he, he goes all the way down to the floor. How, how much is it? How, how high is the basket? It's 10 feet. He goes on to say, I suspect that you will find the exact same measurements as our little gym back in Hickory. Now go get ready for practice. You see, Gene Hackman's words in that moment served to calm the fear of his players, to remove some of the weight of the moment, and to call them to action. You can do this. In fact, you don't have to do anything different than what you've been doing. Just be faithful to do the fundamentals. The measurements of this court are the exact same, regardless of the circumstances in which you find yourself. The court is the same. So hold fast to those fundamentals. It's an awe-inspiring moment. It's a simple thing, and yet it's powerful. And as we come to Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17 this morning, the author of Hebrews similarly calls his audience to action. He has measured out the court and he calls his readers to faithfulness. And so this morning, as we work our way through this passage, we'll see the call to stand strong, to grow up, and to watch out to the glory of God. First thing we see in verses 12 and 13 is a call to stand strong. Therefore, Strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Therefore, he's transitioning from the passage that we were in last week in Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 11. Therefore, recognizing as you recognize the superiority of Jesus, as you recognize the good purposes of God in your discipline, that everything that He is doing for you is for your good, recognize that. And then as you recognize that, it helps all these distractions, all these things going on out here to kind of fade away. I don't have to worry about that because my God is in control. 
and allows you to focus on the fundamentals. Therefore, knowing that Jesus is superior, knowing that God's purpose and discipline is good, this is what you must do. Strengthen the hands which hang low and the feeble knees and make straight the path for your feet. The author of Hebrews here is drawing on very familiar Old Testament imagery. In fact, verse 12 draws very strongly from Isaiah 35, verse 3. Isaiah 35 is a, is a passage that is looking forward to the kingdom, the promised kingdom that is coming. Written to a nation that, that with, with exile in its future. And yet Isaiah 35 is the promise of a coming kingdom. And the message of Isaiah 35 is, that, is to let the context of hope. There is a coming kingdom. God will fulfill His promises. He may take you into exile, but He will bring you back. Cling to the hope of that kingdom. So let the context of hope be your reason for joy in the present. So the author of Hebrews is picking up on that. He uses that, that same, almost word for word, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Hands which hang down, it's a, it's a posture of defeat. Feeble knees. You can almost think of a, a cartoon where, where the character is, is scared and you can just see their knees shaking. They're standing on weak knees. Strengthen those hands. Strengthen those feeble knees. Stand up. A lot of my illustrations come from, from sports. I, I played a lot of sports as a young man. That was the, the world in which I grew up. And a lot of times... In, in sports, as you get tired, as you're running, or running around, sometimes when the ball's on the other side of the field or, or court or whatever, and you have a second, you'll see a player get down on his knees like this, and he's whew, taking a breath, right? He's tired, he's worn out. And yet, what does the coach often say? Stand up! Stand up! You're telling the other team that you're weak, that you're tired. Stand up! Get your legs underneath you! That's the idea here. The author of Hebrews can, can see those people to which he is writing. They are down on their knees. They are worn out. They are tired. They are about to give in. And he is saying, stand up! Get your legs underneath you. Stand up straight. Don't slouch. Get ready for action. Strengthen the hands which hangs down the feeble needs. And make straight paths for your feet. And here he's drawing on Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26. Make straight paths for your feet. A call to, in Proverbs, a call to wisdom. To be mindful of the path that you are on, the direction that you are going. 
Choose the straight way. Stay obedient. Be wise. Be mindful. Get another illustration from sports. If you ever tried to play sports with weak ankles or, or, or weak knees, I always had weak ankles. There's a lot of running, a lot of cutting that is involved. And, and if you're doing that, you have to be aware of the ground on which you, you walk. Even to this day, I have very weak ankles. I, I can be walking on flat ground. I can walk down this aisle right now, and there's probably a 50-50 chance that I'll sprain my ankle. Just walking on flat ground. You have to be very mindful of the ground that you are walking on. Be careful. Step mindfully. Watch where you're going. Make sure that you are on the right path. It does you no good to strengthen your hands and your feeble needs to stand up and then to go the wrong direction. Strengthen your hands and your feeble knees. Stand up. Stand straight. Prepare for action. And then choose the straight way. The right way. Do not waver to the right or to the left. Be mindful about the direction that you are going. To this end, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. What is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. Even in this encouragement, there is a recognition of the present struggle and weakness of the audience to whom he's writing. I know that you are weak. I know that you are struggling. I know that it hurts. But don't become further disabled. Will you continue to do harm or will you begin to heal? It's like the kid who goes to their mom and says, Mom, it hurts when I do this. Well, then don't do that. Don't cause more harm, more pain. Stop moving towards defeat and start moving towards victory. Stand up. Strengthen your legs and your arms and move in the right direction. Knowing that Jesus is superior and that He has conquered and knowing that God has a good purpose for you and the discipline that He leads you through. So then stand up and go forward on the right path. Be healed. Move towards victory. Move with confidence, with boldness, with faith. But what does this look like? What does it look like to, to get up, to strengthen, and then to, to move forward? Practically, what does it look like? That's what the author of Hebrews goes on to say in verses 14 and 15 and following. 
In verse 14, he gives direction. In verse 15 and following, he gives warning. The first thing we see then is a call to grow up. To grow. Grow in peace and in holiness. What does it look like to move towards victory, towards healing? It looks like growing in the Lord. Progress. Faithfulness. As he says in verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness. The idea of of pursue is earnest, diligent, continuous pursuit. Running after these things. Pursue peace with all people. Peace is a regular theme in the New Testament of those who are in Christ. In fact, in that worship, uh, family worship guide, one of the things that, if you do that this week, that you'll do is you'll go through several passages in the New Testament where those who are in Christ are, are called or reminded to pursue peace. Same thing with with holiness, but but the idea of pursuing peace comes up time and time again. Those who are in Christ are to be known for their promotion of peace. In fact, in John 13.35, what does Jesus tell His disciples? People will know you. By what? By your love for one another. Your peace among each other, among each other that, that love that is evident. But to pursue peace with others, there first must be peace within. You must know peace because, you see, this is not a natural response to discipline and to suffering. Remember, as we reviewed last week, these, these Hebrews, the, to whom this, this letter is written, as the author of Hebrews is writing to these churches, these, these believers are being pulled on both sides. On the one side you have Jerusalem, and on the other side you have Rome. And they're caught in the middle. They are facing persecution. They've been abandoned. They feel alone. And yet, even while others strive against you, even as your freedom and your perceived rights are stripped away, even as you are mistreated, as you lose your property, your opportunities, and likely some of you even your lives, even as your families separate from you, because they see you as a blasphemer. Even as you lose everything that you love, pursue peace with all people. Even those who are persecuting you. Even those who are hurting you. Why? Because you have been made new in Christ. Because you have a different hope. 
A hope that is not based on present victory. But you have a hope that is eternal. You have a peace that passes understanding. Peace that trusts and leans on the sovereign hands of a good God. And so you know that peace with others is possible because you know that God is in control. Therefore, I will not strike out against those who are persecuting me, but I will lean into the hands of my good and sovereign God. I will trust that He is working all things for my good in His purpose. I will pursue peace. Not just peace, but also holiness. Holiness. Righteousness. A growth in Christ-likeness. I think there's a reason that the author of Hebrews focuses on these two things, peace and holiness, because these are two things that really stand out in a world that does not know peace or holiness. Holiness. Now here's an interesting little thing here at the end of the sentence. Pursue peace and holiness. Righteousness, a growing up in the Lord. Continued victory over sin. But this last part of the sentence is almost kind of makes us scratch our heads a little bit. Without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Is the author of Hebrews here saying, that my hope one day of seeing the Lord is in pursuing peace and in pursuing holiness. Because that sounds a little bit confusing. That sounds almost like a works-based religion. If I pursue these things, if I become really peaceful with others and really holy, then I can see the Lord. These are not conditions to see the Lord. Rather, these are characteristics of those who will see the Lord. What he's discussing here is practical holiness. Which is the clear testimony of positional holiness. You see, in Christ, I am righteous. I have been declared righteous before God. My hope is sure. I am as good as glorified, Romans 8 tells me. And yet we understand that we still live in a sinful world. We know how wicked our hearts are and that struggle against sin that we are engaged in day in and day out. In fact, earlier in this very chapter, in verses 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews has said that lay aside that sin which so easily besets us, right? He knows our hearts, how easy it is for us to give in. But we should be growing in that. Hopefully, if you've been saved for 10 years, you have a little bit more victory over that sin that plagued you 10 years ago. You are not a slave to that sin. And as you grow in the Lord, you come to know that victory more and more, and you come to know the power of the cross and the Spirit who indwells you. 
See, the fact that by the grace of God you have learned to control your anger, maybe you do not blow up quite as much, that does not gain you an advantage with God. We don't grow in holiness to impress God. We don't grow in holiness. We don't grow to control our lust or our anger. We do not fight against those things in order to impress God, to gain His ear. We fight against those things because we have been made new in Christ. My growth in those areas testifies to God's work in me. It testifies to my true identity, my true righteousness in Christ. So what the author of Hebrews is saying here is grow in these things. Grow in peace and grow in holiness. Not so that you can become like... Not so that you can have righteousness, but because you are holy in Christ. Live according to who you are in Christ. Keep moving forward. It's the same message that Gene Hackman had to those players as they walked into that gym. Do the fundamentals. You're a basketball player, so play basketball. The measurements of this gym have not changed. Do what you know is right. Do the fundamentals. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here. How do we live like this is true? How do I live like Jesus is superior? What does it look like to submit to the discipline of God, to to strengthen my, my arms and my knees and to submit to that, to move forward in victory? What does that look like? It looks like living like a faithful one who is in Christ. It looks like growing in peace and in holiness. In verses 15 to 16, then there's a warning to watch out. Look carefully. Look carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Look carefully lest anyone. There's an idea here that that I am called to look out for one another. I am called to look out for you. I am called to not just look out for you. I am called to fight for you. That you would not fall short of the grace of God. If you go back to that same picture earlier of the the player who puts his hands down on his knees because he is tired and he's worn out, and the coach says, stand up. You almost think of the captain of the team. He he stands up and he looks around. His team around him is down on their knees too. So he starts going around. Stand up. Stand up. We can do this. Take a deep breath. Get your legs underneath you. Stand up straight. He's looking out for his brothers. But here's a question that lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. What does that mean? You see, if if. The grace of God is a free gift, right? We understand that. Grace is a free gift. If the grace of God is a free gift and merit plays no role in it, then how can one fall short of it? 
See, the idea here is not that you have come to know some of God's grace and yet you don't get to the end of that salvation, of that grace. The idea here is that though you claim the grace of God, you do not know the grace of God. You fall short because you never really submitted. You never really confessed your sins and placed your hope in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You want the benefits of being part of this community, but you don't know the grace of God. Watch out for one another. Make sure that that one another, that your hope is sure. That your testimony is real. That it is not empty or fake. Look carefully. There's a purpose there. There's purpose in looking carefully. It's not just a cursory glance. Okay, they all look good. They all look good this morning, so we're good. Dig deep. Get into one another's life. Do you know the grace of God? I don't want you to fall short. I don't want you to fall away. I don't want you to miss out. I was there for your baptism. I heard your confession, but what I see in your life now, it doesn't match that. Do you know the grace of God? What's going on? Repent. Come back to faithfulness. Look carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, the many become defiled. You see, not only are you looking out for one another, but as you look out for one another, you're guarding everyone. You're guarding the assembly. The root of bitterness, something so small, So seemingly insignificant. A little complaint here or there, and yet it is so contagious and so dangerous that the whole body is in danger. Watch out for it. When you hear it, confront it. Don't let it spread. Pay attention. Watch out for one another. By this, many become defiled. Guard yourself and guard the church by watching out for one another. But he doesn't just stop with these small, seemingly insignificant things, like a bitterness, which is, which is often inside and in manifests itself lightly a little bit here and there before it grows and spreads before you know it. But he even addresses here big, obvious things. Not only a a root of bitterness, but even fornication, profaneness. Look at 
Address these little things. Address these big things. That's all a part of watching out carefully for one another. And he gives an illustration here from the the life of Esau. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. We know the story of Esau from Genesis 25. The idea of, of fornication or sexual sin is not necessarily there. But it gets to the heart of really Esau's big problem. Esau made these foolish decisions here in Genesis 25 because of his heart. It's because he valued pleasant pleasure over permanent joy. And does that not get to the heart of the very issue that these believers are struggling with? With these pressures from the outside? And they are tempted to, to flee that present fear of persecution? They want that, that present comfort? And yet what they don't understand is that like, like Esau, they are making a foolish decision where they are sacrificing the permanent on the altar of the immediate. Esau, this vain man who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. How foolish! How incredibly short-sighted! Why? Because he was more focused on the immediate. He could not see the big picture. He was hungry then. Who cares about later? I want satisfaction now. When you get down to it, that is so often our attitude in suffering or discipline, is it not? We don't want the end result of that suffering, which is good in God's plan. He is molding us into his image through that. We don't want that. We just want satisfaction now. I want to be free of this now. But don't make Esau's mistake. Back up and see the big picture. That God is doing something good through this. So submit to it. In fact, Esau does go on to recognize his mistake, as noted here. You know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He sacrificed it for immediate satisfaction, but in the end, he desperately wanted it back. He recognized his mistake, and yet even though he knew regret, he did not know repentance. He found no place for repentance. He did not grieve his sin. Rather, Esau grieved the loss of his blessing. He serves as a symbol of one who does not want God, but only the blessings of God. In fact, he stands in the contrast to all the examples from Hebrews 11. 
of those who stood fast in the midst of things that they did not understand, in the midst of suffering and testing. They stood fast because their eyes were on the promises of God and His faithfulness, and they clung to that hope. Esau stands as an example of the exact opposite of one who did not see that hope, who did not trust in that, but one who in the present wanted joy and satisfaction and in the reality missed out on true joy and true satisfaction. There is no second chance. If you turn your back on Jesus Christ, as the author of Hebrews is writing here to the, to the Hebrews, to, to the believers uh, that this book of Hebrews was written to. If you turn your back on Jesus Christ, you are turning your back on the truth, and there is no other chance. Do not allow present pain to distract you and to rob you of your eternal blessing in Christ. See the big picture. Live with eternity in view. Know that God is faithful. So lean into what He is doing, even if it hurts. And we know well that there are many times when it does hurt. But lean in knowing that your God is at work for your good. So as we come to the end of this passage, Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17. Number one, do not leave this passage without checking your heart. Be brutally honest with yourself. Maybe you are struggling right now. Maybe the Lord is taking you through something and your faith is is shaking and you are leaning down on your knees and your arms and your legs feel weak. Check your heart. Be honest with yourself. Because it is in those moments when we really ask ourselves, is this real to me? Because it hurts and I am exhausted and I can barely stand, but is this real? Is my faith real? Do I really believe that God is good? Because if I do, I can stand up and I can move on. So check your heart this morning, brother and sister. Is this real to you? Has this impacted your life? Is it more than just a routine that you go through on Sunday? Maybe even a routine that you go through every morning as you get your Bible out and you read and you put it away and you've checked the box and you're good to go. Is this Christian thing just a routine that you go to? Does it kind of satisfy your conscience here in the the here and now? Or is this your hope? Is this your everything? Is this your life? Check your heart and be honest with yourself. Do I really believe this? Have I really placed my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ or am I still clinging to my works? Thinking that I can add something to the cross.
Secondly, as you check your heart, maybe you check your heart and you come away this morning and, and you're saying, you know, it is real to me. I know that it is. I know my Lord and Savior. Then take serious your call. Take serious your call. Pursue peace with all people and holiness because you have been made righteous in Jesus Christ. Because you have hope in Christ. So pursue peace and holiness. Be faithful. Cling to those fundamentals of the Christian faith. Regardless of what is going on out there, regardless of the circumstances, be faithful because God is faithful. Because God is good. Maybe this morning you just need to reconnect your... Re-confess. Re, um, and renew the call to faithfulness in your own life. Maybe you need to, to, to confess. You know what? I, I, I have not been taking this seriously. I've been going through the motions. I have not been pursuing peace with all people and holiness. I've been satisfying my flesh. I need to change that. My eyes have been open to the seriousness of the call in Christ, the hope that I have. I know that I need to grow and to change. Finally, check your heart, take serious your call, and recognize what is at stake. It is eternity that is at stake. It is the glory of God himself that is at stake. Do not make the mistake of Esau focused on the present, but keep your eyes on eternity. Live with eternity in view.